0: So this is in the Babylon Bee. After being pressured to join a small group for the past three years, local church introvert Danny Miles finally found the perfect excuse. He simply told the minister that he's already in the smallest group of all, one He said, oh, you want me to join a small group? I'm already in one. It's great. We meet daily. There's no small talk, just lots of thinking. We don't waste any time with pleasantries. We're consistently with each other like all the time. He told the minister his small group was much more effective because of its size. He says, if your small group balloons up to four, three, or even two people, you just don't get that intimate one-on-zero relational connection that Christians so desperately need. He also confirmed the small group always starts on time and does not have an, an annoying running group text. It's the perfect setup. Well, I will tell you this morning right off the bat that today I'm going to try to convince all of us to join a small group. Now, here we call them life groups. Life groups, Bible studies, small groups, those are all kind of describing the same thing. The real difference, somebody said, between a, a small group and a life group. Of course, in a life group, you do life together. So someone might ask you to help move their refrigerator. So there's that in a life group as opposed to just a Bible study or a small group. But I want us all to consider that this morning, and I want to say three things about small groups. Now I'm going to use small group in my terminology because in this message I'm focusing on the benefits of the smallness. A life group by definition is small, usually 8 to 12 people. You can get up a little higher than that, up to 20 maybe, or it may be smaller than that, 4 or so. But I want to focus on the size. Number one, say three things today. Number one, there is a biblical precedent for small groups. There's a biblical precedent. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, in our understanding, there are no apostles today. There are no prophets today. Our apostles and prophets are the same ones that Jesus had. And the apostles and prophets wrote The New Testament. So, when Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he's talking about the New Testament scriptures. That's the foundation of the church. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And so, what we do in a restoration church is that we look for patterns in the church of the New Testament or traditions or precedents that were set, and we base our practice upon that. That's why we have church on Sunday. That's what they did in the New Testament. That's why we have the the Lord's Supper every Sunday instead of just monthly or quarterly or yearly because Acts chapter 20 verse 7 said they did that every Sunday on the first day of the week. That's why we practice a baptism of believers by immersion in water. That's a New Testament practice and precedent. That's why our church polity is an autonomous congregation under the oversight of a plurality of elders. All that is a New Testament precedent. So you understand what I mean by precedent. Uh, I'll just give you another example. On January 20th, 2021, President Biden began the day, his inauguration day, in church that morning with his family. Now you say, Steve, I can't believe you're bringing politics into the church. That's right, his predecessor, President Trump, did the same thing. President Obama did the same thing. President Bush did the same thing. That's a precedent. It goes all the way back to 1809 and that. The first president to do that, anybody know who that was? Yeah, you're computing now. All right, I'll give you a big hint. Let's put his picture up there on the screen. Does that help you? Of course not. They all look the same back then. All right, so that's James Madison. March 4th is Inauguration Day, 1809. He and his family started the day in church, in prayer and worship. Ever since then, every president has done the same on their inauguration. That's a precedent for presidents, and that's what I mean. It's a tradition. It's a pattern that we follow. So all I'm saying here is that's important to a church like this one. This one is committed to restoring the New Testament practice, and there is a precedent for using small groups. Start with Jesus. When Jesus would preach and teach, he could attract crowds of thousands of people, but there was a smaller group with whom he did life, into whom he poured his life. We call them the 12 what? Well, I will accept apostles or disciples. Luke chapter 6, verse 13, when morning came, Jesus called his disciples to him, chose 12 of them whom he designated as apostles. This was his small group. This was his life group. Likewise, when we move into the New Testament in the book of Acts, that record of the early church started off with a bang with 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost and never got smaller than that. Nevertheless, they would use houses to meet in. Now, sometimes in their big gatherings, they would gather in the temple courts. But they had to use houses. There were no designated church buildings at that time. That dictated a small group structure. Acts chapter 2, verse 46, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Acts 5.42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ for worship, for prayer, for study of the apostles' doctrine and for evangelizing, they're using houses. The fact that they use houses, they're houses. No bigger than ours. So there's only so many people that you can cram into a house. So it was small. When you look at the New Testament letters for instance, of the Apostle Paul written to churches, the church in the city of Rome, or to the church in the city of Corinth, or to the church in the city of Philippi, to the churches in Galatia. We see this pattern emerge. For instance, Romans 16.3, Great Priscilla and Aquila, also the church that meets at their house. Verse 14, greet Asyncretus. And there's about four or five names listed there. And he says, the brethren with them. Verse 15, great Philologist. Four or five names are listed, and then he says, and all the saints who are with them. Most commentators believe those are two more house churches that he's referring to in Rome. Colossians 4:15. 15, greet Nympha and the church in her house. Philemon 1 2, to Archippus and to the church that meets in your home. Now, I'm not saying anything about church buildings. Obviously, I have no problem using a church building. But as far as we know, the first church building, a church that was built dedicated just to Christians coming together and assembling together is from the 3rd century A.D. Up until that time, they're meeting in schools, in synagogues, and in homes. So they got a small group structure. Apparently, you had a citywide church. For instance, in Rome, you had one church for the city with a shared eldership and a shared treasury, but the people were meeting in small groups and cells throughout the city and people's homes. So all that's just to say, when we talk about life groups, we're not talking about a novel idea or something that's new. We're talking about restoring the practice of the New Testament church. All right, here's the second thing I want to say. Love is actualized. Love is actualized in small groups. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said. Apostle John writes in 3 John 1, 14, I hope to see you soon. We will talk face-to-face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. So as we talk about love, we know that's the second greatest commandment is love. First is love God. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. How do do we do that? The the Apostle John here indicates a very personal, interpersonal relationship in the church. Greet them face to face. Call them by name. Now, the large assembly on Sunday has its place. And there's a degree of love that is expressed here, but calling each other by name. I wonder if there's anyone in here right now who could stand up on this stage and start going from person to person down the rows and call everyone here by name, excluding the first-time guests? I don't think so. I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could do that. And yet there's that level of intimacy that is often referred to in the Scriptures. 44% of the New Testament is written to instruct Christians on interpersonal relationships, how to get along. 4% 4% of the New Testament is written about spiritual gifts. So, just the amount of material that's dedicated into how we are to love each other tells you something about how important it is. The term one another, the, the, the word that's translated one another in the scripture, is translated 59 times. These commands instruct us to encourage one another, love one another, confess to one another, pray for. Accept, serve, bear with, forgive, teach, honor, be devoted to one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds, be humble toward one another, offer hospitality to one another. We're simply saying it's more likely we're going to actualize that in a small group Context. Okay, are we doing all of that on Sunday in the church assembly? Maybe to a degree, but to a much lesser degree. It simply is not possible. Now, I I was reading a story about a grandmother who took her little six-year-old granddaughter to church for the first time. And it was in this church. They came to a part in the liturgy where they they were kneeling down in high back pews. And the little girl said to her grandmother, Grandma, who are we hiding from? It's not hard to hide in a large church setting. Even, even here we've got maybe 75 people in this room. But on Sunday you can come and be about as involved or uninvolved as you want to be. You can be the undercover boss. You can fly under the radar. Lots of people do that. We facilitate that. Before people make a commitment to this church, for instance, a lot of times they'll come and they'll, they'll leave and they're, because they're watching. They want to check us out. They want to see if we handle snakes or smack people on the forehead or what do we do here? I would do the same thing. You know, back when, uh, back in my day, so I grew up going to church, Englewood Christian Church in Jacksonville, Florida from the time I was like four or five years old. Back in my day, in church on Sunday, Fred Smith, the preacher, if you were a guest in church on Sunday, he would say, oh, we have a guest here. Why don't you stand up and introduce yourself? Or if you brought a guest, you know. He'd say, Dwight, why don't you stand up and introduce your guest today? And the introverts would be mortified. They would want to die. I mean, they would do it, but they might never come back. And so but that's why we kind of facilitate. It's fine if somebody wants to be undercover boss and just check us out for however long. But when you join or commit to a life group, when you come into a small group, your cover is blown. The cover is blown. It's no longer just observing. It's no longer just watching from the sidelines or in the stands. You're on the field. You're playing the game. You're involved. Now, it's a little bit risky to get in there and play the game, but that's where most of the benefits are. That's where most of the fun is as well. And we might not know everybody's name in this room, but in your life group, you're going to know everybody's name. And they are going to know your name. And you're going to love one another in that group. Jackie Hill Perry has written a book called Gay Girl, Good God. This is a good book. If you're same-sex attracted or if you have somebody in your family who's struggling with same-sex attraction, this is, this is a good book. She's, she's same-sex attracted. She was in a lesbian relationship, and she began to study the Bible and met some Christians and was going to church and, and finally broke off that relationship and left that lifestyle. In the book she writes about her journey but here's part of what she says. She says, "We encourage same-sex attracted Christians to see singleness, singleness as a gift. As that becomes more common, our local church communities will need to reevaluate the ways in which we have failed to be the family of God to all married and singles as God has called us to be. The world sees romantic sexual intimacy as the only Real, deep level of intimacy. Therefore, the call to singleness might be seen as a call to loneliness. And we know loneliness has never been the intention of God for His image bearers. He, a triune God, is by nature a communal God. And He has created us all to be communal as He is. The problem is that for some singles, the feelings of loneliness are so tangible because the presence of community is not... If we are to help same-sex attracted singles know the well-deep non-sexual intimacy that can exist, the church must actively endeavor to show it. As long as this is the case culturally and it's reflected in our churches, it will be very hard for any single person to feel as though the Christian sexual ethic is plausible. So we need to make sure our church family really is a family. Jesus promised that no one who has left home or brother, sister, mother, father, children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sister, mother, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And she concludes, So it should be the case that anyone who has joined our churches is able to say they've experienced an increase in intimacy and community. So, we're going to have Richard Phillips' memorial service today at 2 o'clock. Everybody's invited to come back if you're available and show some love to Donna and pay your respects to Richard. Richard and Donna are part of Randy Loss's life group. And as they were going through that process, and, and Richard was passing, their life group ministered to them, encouraged them, read Scripture, had prayer. Visited in the hospital, visited in the home, provided meals. Came alongside and did that pastoral care and shepherding on a grassroots level, the one anothering. That's what can happen in a life group. It's really what everyone, all of us need. The great commission engine in the, the book Internal, uh, uh, Intentional Churches suggests that they're in a church to grow in a healthy way, there are three pistons. There are three pistons. catalytic Sunday services. What happens on Sunday needs to be catalytic. Number two, life-changing or transformational, personal relationships and surrendered living. Those are the three pistons. What we're talking about now in this structure of life groups is the life-changing relationships. And those three pistons, they are driven, they're driven by the engine of the one. The concept of the one. Always remembering the one who's not here but who needs to be here. So in in my last point here, let's talk about the one for a minute. Church growth is facilitated. Church growth is facilitated through small groups. Luke records in Acts 4, but many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So they start off the church begins in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, with 3,000 baptisms. Never got smaller from there, so much for those who want to keep the church small. In chapter 4, this is about four years later, they're up to 5,000 men. When you add the women and children, it's ten or 15,000 people. How do they accommodate all of that growth in one city church? Small groups. Small groups are scalable. Because they're scalable, then the church can grow. The largest church in the world is Full Gospel Central Church in Seoul, South Korea with 480,000 members. They meet in thousands and thousands of small groups and home churches. It's scalable. One mother had invited over the preacher and the the guest missionaries after church for dinner. And when they sat down to the dinner table, she said to her little five-year-old daughter, she said, Honey, why don't you have the blessing for us? The little daughter said, I wouldn't know what to say. And the mom says, well, why don't you just say what you hear me say? So they bowed their heads. And the little girl prayed, oh, Lord, why did I invite all these people over for dinner today? You know, the average church in America is size is 50. That's the average church size is 50. Most churches never get above 200 in attendance. It's called the 200 Barrier. One of the reasons is, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is the paradigm or the idea that the preacher or the minister or the pastor, whatever you call him from where you come from, is the primary spiritual caregiver for the whole church. All right, that paradigm limits the growth of the church because one person working at as a, as a full time to meet other people's spiritual needs can handle about 200 people, but even that he will not do well. So that becomes a limit on the growth of the church unless there's a paradigm change where the church is willing to accept spiritual care from a plurality of pastors and caregivers and even beyond that through a structure of small life groups. I'll tell you a dirty little secret. There's a lot of ministers, a lot of pastors. When somebody joins their church of about 200, they're glad in in one way but in another way They're reluctant because they're thinking, I can't take care of the needs of the people who are already here, much less a whole nother family. We don't want that bottleneck. We don't want there to be a restriction. We want to have room for every single person who comes into this church. When somebody is baptized here or transfers their membership to Vera Christian Church, I rejoice. I rejoice just like the angels in heaven do and just like all of us do. But when I hear that they have joined a life group, I breathe a sigh of relief. I do. Because I know that having done that, the odds that they're still going to be here a year later and have sunk their, deeps, their, their roots deep into Christ have increased exponentially. Christian Schwartz writes, after studying thousands of churches over covering six continents, he listed loving relationships as one of the necessary qualifications for a growing church. Our research indicates that there is a highly significant relationship between the ability of a church to demonstrate love and its long-term growth potential. Growing churches possess, on average, a measurably higher love quotient than stagnant or declining ones. Unfeigned practical love has a divinely generated magnetic power far more effective than evangelistic programs which depend almost entirely on verbal communication. People do not want to hear us talk about love. They want to experience how Christian love really works. So the bottom line and the next step is to commit ourselves to join a life group this time around. Now I I know that not everyone's going to do that. Some people, because of their circumstances, maybe physical restrictions, they can't do that. Some people simply are not inclined, and they never will. My dad, for instance, uh, he passed away years ago, but my dad was an introvert. He was an introvert's introvert. And he would attend church, but he would be the last one in. And as they're singing the final words of the final song, he's the first one out. Maybe some of you are like that. You know who you are. But he would never have joined a life group. He just wouldn't. I I know that about him. So I want you to know, I always have him in the back of my mind and what we do in our programming and what I say. I don't want you to think I'm guilting anybody. I'm not manipulating anybody. This thing about life groups its not a test of fellowship here. If you're not in a life group, we can still be friends. But having said that, I wish my dad had joined a life group. I think it would have been good for him. I think he would have enjoyed his spiritual journey more. It would have enriched his life. He could have used those relationships and those friendships. So all we're saying here, we want everyone to consider, consider committing yourself to a life group. In June 1965, six Tongan teenagers sailed from their island home in search of adventure. But when a storm broke their mast and rudder the very first night, they drifted for days without food or water before reaching the uninhabited island of Atah. It would be 15 months before they were found. The boys worked together on the island to survive, setting up a small food garden, hollowing out tree trunks to store store rainwater, even building a makeshift gym. When one boy broke his leg from a cliff fall, the others set it using sticks and leaves. Arguments were managed with mandatory reconciliation. Each day began and ended with singing and prayer. All six of these boys were Christians. When the boys emerged from their ordeal, they were finally discovered by passing fishermen. They emerged from their ordeal healthy. Their families were amazed. All of their funerals had already been held. Maybe those castaways have something to teach us about small groups, interdependence, mutual support, and life. In 2015, 50 years after being marooned on the island, one of the castaways named Kolo returned. He lived for 10 days on the island under the same primitive conditions as before, reliving and reenacting the life-changing experience. He says, although at the time he thought it was one of the worst experiences of his life, in retrospect, it was the best experience of his life. We're going to have the Lord's Supper right now. And this is kind of a reenactment of a life-changing experience for us. That is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That has changed our lives by him, him inviting us in to be adopted into the family of God. As I said, we do this every Sunday here at Vera Christian Church. All Christians are invited to partake. I'm going to bow and have a prayer over the elements, and then you'll have an opportunity to come forward either one of these three tables up front or go back there to one of the three tables in the back and partake of those elements, and it's gluten-free right back here in the corner. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us. We thank you that you sent Jesus for us. By his death, burial, and resurrection, we, you have opened up your family to include us in, into your love, into your peace, and into your joy. All of that's made possible by Christ. And we remember that during this time, and also that we want to keep our hearts and our spiritual family open, always open to that one who is not yet here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.